All right, so I guess I'll just lead us in and we'll go from there. Just try not to, uh, you know, collapse on us. I'll, I'll go try my best. All right, hello everyone and welcome to the Osim Bunker podcast. I'm Osim Technical here with Kyle Glenn and Ace Jace. This week is... Uh, definitely been a busy one we've seen pretty much russia 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 and more russia um uh, uh yesterday biden and putin talked on the phone um we had a lot of developments happen from that we've i think gotten a pretty good idea of what russia wants in the near future and um i think we're also gonna have ace jace here to talk about sort of um a lot of different turkish related issues especially uh developments in the turkish defense industry which has a lot to do um with uh russian ukrainian tensions right now um so i i i think i'll just lead us in here and um see what everyone has to say for this week no okay all right yeah okay so i'll just i'll just i'll just lead us in with you know the 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 craziness of the past um uh, past few weeks so we've seen tensions ratchet up on the uh ukrainian um russian border um russia has moved a bunch of different uh, uh battalion tactical groups in um definitely a fairly large portion of russia's non-reservist force um which has definitely been um uh, uh certainly a development just because that's a super expensive thing to do and um uh, definitely something that the russians have spent time trying to do as well uh on top of that we've seen the ukrainians make a lot of statements um more to the international press they seem to be trying to uh gain favor of um uh, of people themselves not just international uh figures so that's definitely an interesting thing we've seen so it, it's actually resulted in the ukrainians releasing a lot of um uh, uh tactical intelligence um, on on Russian movement, so it, it's sort of sorting through that has definitely been difficult. Um, I know the Ukrainians have been trying to acquire a lot of new weaponry. Um, the U.S. has been supplying them and has made promises to supply them, both with um, the big things recently have been javelin missiles and ammunition. But I know um, the uh, Turkish government has also been helping the Ukrainians sort of with the the autonomous and UAV um, warfare side of things. You wanna. Help me sort of uh, explore that. Uh, absolutely. Uh, the Turkish defense industry uh, currently is uh, making the TB2 UKS uh, used in many uh, countries like Libya, Kazakhstan, and many more. And now Turkey is trying to help uh, the Ukrainian government uh, with the acquisition of the TB2 UKS, even building a, a facility to be locally producing them, them, yeah, um, and I'm sure it will be a great asset for the Ukrainian military when it comes to a possible conflict between uh, Ukraine and Russia. Yeah, and I think there have been a lot of questions about sort of how the TB2 would perform in the case of a hot war, sort of, you know, whether or not it can sort of operate in contested airspace, whether or not... Um, it can carry out strikes against uh, more heavily armored targets. I think we saw some of that um, happen uh, in the Nagorno-Karabakh war um, earlier uh, last year, or sorry, later last year, um, where TB2s used by um, uh, Azerbaijan were very effective against sort of a, a similar Russian-based 
um, uh, air defense network uh, in Armenia. But I think that there there still remains some questions about how effective the system would be in a in a very denied airspace environment. Um, so I think that's a definitely something we're going to see moving into the future is is how effective um those tb2s are because we already know they'll they'll be very effective against um uh, uh enemies like the russian separatists in eastern ukraine who don't have dedicated air support um but it's it's just that question of um those those sort of uh, uh, uh vulnerable assets operating in a denied airspace environment yeah it's gonna be like very interesting to see uh, we are speaking of Russian military, not uh, like some some uh, small group who has not, uh, no air defense systems. And in the as said, uh, it will be very interesting how it performs and how it could uh, prove them uh, itself on the international stage. And yeah, and it, also hasn't, oh, sorry, it hasn't been used in uh, any kind of conflict in which like the other side has had a decent sized air force like you know obviously going back to um russia and the georgia war in 2008 there's that famous video isn't there of a of a georgian uav being shot down by a, a russian fighter jet um which you know in a in a, in a just a 1v1 kind of matchup you know the, the tb2 is going to have absolutely zero defenses against you know a, a modern russia uh fighter russian fighter aircraft so to speak so it's not just air defenses but also just the russian air force in general which would be a major threat to uh ukrainian drones agreed agreed uh, this is a factor also yeah i was gonna say ukraine's gonna have to really sort of sort of like pick that times and pick that target really carefully with them is that they're a lim- they're in a limited number as there is and they're gonna have to be really really strategic about how they utilize it yeah and we we will probably see that change especially if sort of a hot war starts to develop um i i would expect the um turkish government to uh assist the ukrainians in procuring more tb2s um I mean, the other question is, is how much diplomatic uh, action would Russia take against um, Turkey? Sort of what are the vulnerabilities Turkey has to potential Russian um, influence moving into the future? I, I, I know Turkey has definitely um, uh, positioned itself sort of as an independent power in the region, somewhat independent of both Russia and NATO. Um, so even though you know they they do procure armed systems for russia and are a member of nato but it, it definitely um turkey serves as sort of a, a, a an independent power in any sort of conflict between the the two sides though they do have of course nato treaty obligations um but it, it will definitely be interesting to see sort of how russia tries to take advantage of that absolutely and um... And most importantly, uh, Putin is not happy that uh, Turkey is even selling drones to Turkey, even uh, to Ukraine. And it uh, cautions Turkey many, uh, many times that it should not uh, sell any anything to Ukraine, even in that stage of uh, possible conflict now. Yeah, it's it's Ukraine is equal opportunity for pissing everyone off. <laughs> they'll they'll, they'll make the u.s angry with buying the s-400 they'll make russia angry with selling tb2s to ukraine so i i think 
yeah, it, I mean, it's definitely a sort of a, a very easy way to sort of see how Ukraine or, or how uh, Turkey has been um, sort of forging an independent path in, in the region, probably ever since uh, the 90s at this point. So definitely, um, certainly an evolution in its role. And I think it shows uh, how worried Russia is about these drones that they so, you know, kind of pissed off that Turkey has sold them to Ukraine. Um, I, I was reading uh, another article recently, not about drones, but about um, it was a, a new electronic warfare system that Ukraine has developed. And it's currently um, the OSE have spotted it a few times on the front in like Donetsk and the Luhansk regions. Um, and there's very little information about it on on google like the you know the, the only mentions are kind of in the kind of russian um like military blogs and stuff like that um and all they do is they kind of just they just constantly slag it off and say how terrible it is and it's it's no good and it won't work and all the rest of it which you know can probably take to mean that it's pretty good and and that's why they're attacking it so much um but yeah it seems like russia only seems to kind of take note to what ukraine is developing or or what they're buying when it seems to be something they feel is a genuine threat to them yeah, that's that's definitely something. I mean, there also is, of course, the performative aspect that Russia takes um, w with everything. So it, it sometimes is hard to to clear through what they actually are angry about, um, just due to the nature of sort of um, how they work diplomatically. It's it's almost similar to China in that usually they're trying to uh, create the situation where. Um, where they can put pressure on one thing when they really want another thing removed. So it, it, it's definitely interesting to see, but they do genuinely seem concerned about the TB2s just because even if a hot war doesn't develop, they'll, it's a very important asset for Ukraine to have. Um, conducting airstrikes on, on, on Russian separatists would certainly um, uh, uh, change how sort of the they, they fight because for the past, you know, six years now they've just sort of been uh in various skirmishes and, and conflicts around that border area and and the the ukrainians having access to standoff strike capability is um certainly uh, going to be a massive asset for them indeed and we've seen like three months ago like that uh, ukraine has firstly used like first time used uh, the tb2 on separate uh, separatist uh, uh groups uh, of Russia, uh, with a strike on an artillery artillery strike uh, fight. Yeah, and that's that's another huge asset they're going to be able to do because a lot of what um, the Russian rebel groups do is they they shell um, Ukrainian positions, and, and the Ukrainians have sort of counter battery capability, but it's not great. But this will absolutely. It will destroy them easily. Yeah, yeah it, it will give them the ability to reach out and go into contested space and, and destroy those um, a, a Russian separatists, a, a, a variety of the artillery pieces they have, and, you know, uh, just the ability to sort of target those high-value assets as well. And, of course, at the end of the day, what are drones really, really good at? They're, they're really, really, really good at, at, at targeting commanders. And, and you, if the Ukrainians are able to utilize um, good intel on the ground, they will absolutely be able to um, uh, target leadership figures um, in the DPR, um, so that, that, that will definitely be a, a very dangerous thing for, for those separatist leaders.
And I suppose there's a, a real risk as well. There's obviously, you know, the use of the TB2 was an escalation on, on Ukraine's part. I mean, they said it that it was used because, um, you know, separatist forces were shelling um, an area, a Ukrainian soldier was killed, and, you know, the separatist shelling was preventing them from, I believe it was preventing them from getting into retrieval body or preventing them from, you know, getting to provide aid to like those soldiers so they used the drone to um destroy the artillery piece that was that was shelling them um which you know obviously it was a, an escalation on ukraine's part and i suppose the danger is um is i, I um, if russia themselves starts supplying um like armed uavs to to the separatists obviously there's they've given them all antennas which aren't armed um but again i'm no expert on on the UAV industry of Russia, I'm not sure um, what the capabilities are, um, but I suppose it is a risk possibly that a few of those could get smuggled over the border or just you know given over the border um, to kind of level a playing field, so to speak. Yeah, I think one of the issues is sort of the um, the separatist groups don't really have that much room to operate them, um, so uh, uh, there there aren't many really many places to take off or land, and the um, the the Russian unmanned combat aerial vehicle uh, market is or or development system is sort of less mature than uh, Turkey's definitely. Um, I, I just I don't really see that becoming a big risk. Maybe it would be Russian drones operated from inside of Russia with sort of this sort of plausible deniability veil that Russia has always had, though that could fall apart really quickly. Um, it's just I, I I really don't think the the separatist groups would really have the ability to operate those or any sort of larger drone with offensive capabilities. No, that's a good point. And you know, as far as the deniability goes, I think Russia has cared less and less about that over the years. I mean, again, if you look at like the OFC reports, occasionally you know a system will pop up or they've spotted which was never you know sold to ukraine you know the the narrative russia has always pushed is all the all of the weapons and uh, uh systems that the separatists have were captured from ukrainian stockpiles um and then occasionally you know you'll see a uh i believe it was like an upgrade of the um the, the you know the bm21 grads uh multiple rocket system um and it wasn't anything significant i believe it was just like the kind of chassis it was based on was was kind of upgraded um but it was never sold to ukraine and they keep popping up in 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 you know in the donbass region um and there's only one way you know obviously it's getting there um as well you know you you, you see other things like they they've got, got like battlefield radar and uh oh yeah then again uh, high level service terror missile systems um oh yeah yeah which is you know definitely something that people didn't exactly expect them to have um you know just because it's it's a fairly aggressive system to have of course the buck m1 is not something that was just lying around in the region no i mean ukraine did have them but yeah they, they definitely didn't just walk into a you know random military base and stroll out with it that, that like, obviously wasn't what happened um and it, i mean and it, you know, of speaking course... of the relies a, a high level of technical proficiency as well to operate oh yeah of course of course yeah um again that was the other russian narrative wasn't it that these weren't professional soldiers they were just kind of pissed off locals um who had taken up arms against an, an oppressive state obviously well that was russia's uh narrative um and yeah you can't just operate these systems with a bit of luck and you know google um 
but you know, speaking of the book um, and speaking of the Russian build-up as well, you know, there was that recent video that came out in the last couple of hours um, from Ukraine's northern border, which uh, it was kind of like a staging ground, um, a few hundred kilometers or even even less on that from the Ukrainian border that had um, buck missile systems, and also you know more concern, uh, more concerningly the, um, the you know, a bunch of uh, additional missiles as well, trucks kind of loaded with four or five additional missiles for these systems, um, which I don't remember seeing back in March, April during the last build up. Yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of the equipment actually sort of remained over the 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 months since the um since the spring build up. Um, so a lot of the stuff that we've seen, you know, there or during that buildup, like the, you know, toss flamethrowers and various artillery systems, and I believe a new S400 or maybe an S300 PMU battery, um, those were all deployed and, and we did not see evidence that they were removed. Um, so, so there is that possibility that we're seeing that a lot of the equipment it was moved to the region and sort of pre-placed there, um, combined with this new buildup we're seeing of um, both supplies and men. Um, so it's just, uh, we are getting to that point where, where Russia, especially with the number of battalion tactical groups they've deployed into the area, are sort of massing enough troops to make a serious push into Ukraine. Um, and and of course that concern has been reflected by Ukrainian intelligence, U.S. intelligence, and I believe at this point European intelligence, which has always sort of been skeptical on a lot of these things. So it's just it's it's sort of this entire narrative is coming together, and then throw in what the Russians have been saying over the past few weeks of um, you know uh, we just want Ukraine to not become a member of NATO. We want promises from NATO of no more Eastern expansion. Um, this is definitely something that, that Russia has a reason to be doing. Um, the the real question at this point is, will they go through it? And if this isn't the real reason, and, and that is a potential, what is the real reason? You know, are they trying to put economic pressure on Ukraine? Are they trying to make it harder for the Ukrainian state to exist? So it, it's just, it's sort of going on and on and on and trying to figure out, you know, this this Russian uh, uh, motivation. And I guess you could say, um, uh, you know, it's your your good old Mastroika. It's, it's, it, there's a mask that you, you don't know what the Russians are really trying to do. Um, even if they're being clear about something, they're, they're probably lying at the end of the day. And there, there's probably uh, some different reason for what they're doing. And it's just, it's really, really important to take that into account of, you know, even if Russia is massing troops in these this region, it, there might be another reason who, and and really without sort of access to very, very classified information, we, we just don't know. Uh, I'm going back to what you were saying about um, putting pressure on Ukraine and making Ukraine, you know, making it more, more difficult for them to... Uh exist as such you know but you know back in 2014 they lost a you know very strong ally in ukraine in uh, yanukovych when he was ousted and fled to russia um which obviously started the whole uh you know the annexation of crimea and the invasion of the donbass region to start with was because you know they were really worried now that ukraine's gonna start leaning very very heavily to europe and nato and the west um and that's obviously why they went into Crimea and they made sure they got those, you know, the ports. Um, so, yeah, I suppose that could be, you know, and obviously there was, um, Zelensky was warning of uh, the 
the so-called coup at the start of this month, which never materialized. You know, he, he said that Russia was plotting a coup with oligarchs in Ukraine, um, which you know, which never happened. But I think Zelensky is kind of worried that his position is very shaky um, and possibly kind of Russia building up and making their threats. They, they're trying to kind of maybe make it a bit more shaky. So he kind of collapses internally without needing a, an external push, shall we say. Yeah, and, and that, that is certainly something. And also, internal Ukrainian politics have a lot to do um, with what's going on. Um, so uh, that will also have a big element um, to what's happening. Of course, Zelensky has actually sort of taken advantage of the situation um, in some ways to uh, deal with perceived political enemies by uh, accusing them of plotting a coup, which... Um, it's a very Zelensky thing to do, I will say. Um, it, it is it is absolutely something I would expect him to do, to be honest. Um, but it, it just shows how, how certain figures, of course, on both sides will take advantage of a situation. And it, it always is important to come at um, anything that happens with a super critical eye. Um, because if you don't, you'll get swept up into things like, you know, Zelensky's fairly obvious propaganda of, you know, they're they're trying to coup me, the Russians. But it's going to be through my political enemy who poses a legitimate internal threat to me. Um, and, you know, a lot of people took that and ran at face value um, and sort of perpetrated that what was arguably a purely propaganda line from Zelensky. Um so, or or not even a propaganda line, but maybe taking the truth and then twisting it to his own, you know, to his own gain, which is certainly not something that you sort of want to run with at face value. And it's super, super important to be critical at all times. Um, and, and, you know, understand when the Ukrainians put out information, it, there's obviously a twist for it. And same with the Russians. When the Russians say, oh, it's a peaceful buildup, you, you know, it's it's obviously not true like they're they're saying things that are ridiculous but it, it just it, it goes back to that importance of looking at things with a critical view um and backing things up with facts and information and that's just that's the most important thing that anyone can do so but, as, uh, as... but yeah but yeah i agree um when some some politicians like say something uh he tried to kill me or something we always should uh, have a second thought of it, like be skeptical and, and question everything and not believe anything like straight up if something has been said or had made a statement. And as we can see, uh, Russia is not trying to. When someone says that, like how over 150,000 uh, troops has been uh, amassed on the border, borders. Even Belarus uh, has some uh, Russian troops, as I know, or will actually join up to invade uh, uh, Ukraine. And that's, that's something we need to watch. Yeah, obviously, you know, it's... And that's that's the important thing. We don't have all the information, so we, we are forced to watch and sort of draw inferences and of course all of us are sort of in the role of digesting the that base level information and turning it into something uh, uh more digestible for the general public um which each of us does in sort of our own way which is super important but um 
uh, of course right. it's it's very easy for us as well to fall into these narratives um and, and not take the critical view and sort of go with sort of the, the general flow of what everyone is doing and i think uh, traditional media always falls into that trap um yeah. sort of, of of going with the flow they they have a lot better information gathering abilities but they they're very very vulnerable falling into into that trap um and that's that's definitely something to remember but you know it's it's something that we're able to sort of uh, keep ahead of i guess and sort of you know have that self-critical uh, view and that that self-critical uh, opinion all the time which again super important but um at, at the end of the day look either russia is going to invade ukraine or they aren't those are you know our binary options here um but but there are other things they can do, of course, like massing troops on the border and putting political and economic pressure on Ukraine. That's something that's uh, probably going to happen. Probably, and cause uh, possibly an internal conflict yeah. inside politically. Force force Ukraine to, to distance themselves from Turkey. That's also a possibility. For example, or EU in general. Anything's possible. Yeah, and, and even putting, you know, I, both economic pressure and, and political pressure on Turkey as well in order for Turkey to distance themselves from Ukraine. It's just there's, you know, they, they obviously have things they do not like about uh, the, the Turkish-Ukrainian relationship, and they will sort of do a lot to um, uh, uh, to separate the two countries. That's that's something that they've made pretty clear that they're going to try to do. Um and so that's obvious. Yeah, the 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 question at this point is what do they do to do that? We've sort of seen a, a lot of things. And and I think actually sort of when when Putin says he's he's afraid of NATO expanding to the east, he he there are sort of there there are two lines of thinking behind that. There's the fear of Ukraine, you know, joining the traditional NATO uh, body and sort of becoming this thorn in in Russia's underbelly. Um, with this sort of massive new NATO border next to them. But but it, it's also the more direct recent relationship between Turkey, which is a NATO country, and Ukraine, um, which, which is sort of that second part of that NATO-Ukrainian relationship, which is arguably much more direct than other countries in NATO have been um, with Ukraine. So it's it, there. There is sort of, I believe, this sort of twofold thinking behind what Putin is saying when when he complains about that that you know NATO NATO Ukrainian relationship is. There's the traditional Western European NATO Ukrainian relationship, and then there's that what has been very valuable to Ukraine uh, Turkish Ukrainian relationship. It's very beneficial when it comes to defense and economic uh, um, aspects of it, and. We, when we look at Turkey, at, Turkey is the second largest army in NATO. One of the capable, one of the most capable uh, in the alliance. Like, oh, absolutely. That's why and... Russia is like a little bit <laughs> afraid. Like, it's can anything can happen, and we have many differences. Like in Armenia, Karabakh, Azerbaijan, Libya, where Wagner forces are present. Uh, where else? And many places. That's why Syria, which has been, you know, uh, I, I think uh, pardon? Syria or, or Syria is sort of, I, I guess in, in a way, Syria is, is Turkey's, you know, Ukraine or yeah, it, it, it's 
it's sort of this area where you have a lot of gray zones in the conflict. And of course, Turkey occupies territory in Syria right now and Russia backs groups that are fairly opposed to Turkey as well. Um, so it's just, again, it's Turkey is right now the, the front line of the, of what wars have become between NATO and Russia is sort of this very, very gray zone. Not the publication. They're an absolute rag. Yeah. Utter absolutely. trash. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but I think I think we should move on at this point um, uh, and, and talk about, I guess, stuff that isn't Russia, because that's basically all we've been talking about for the last two weeks um, and probably has some people just, just slightly annoyed at us um, because, you know, <laughs> that. Um, so the F-35... Uh, that crashed into the Mediterranean. That has been recovered finally, thankfully. Oh, man. <laughs> um, and of course, the the other part of, of that uh, of that equation is the um, sailor on the Queen Elizabeth who leaked said F thirty five footage has been um, has has been removed. I believe. I I don't know. He was uh, flown. He was, he's been flown off the ship and he's been arrested. Gotcha. Okay. Um. And is there any news where he was arrested? Was he taken to Gibraltar or? No, honestly not not a not not a there's nothing that's gone out about so far other than that he's he's no longer on the ship and he was arrested gotcha um yeah and and we'll see obviously i would expect an mod investigation into um how why i guess who would be one of the important ones um because that was definitely some uh very sensitive footage to leak And especially uh, uh, an F-35 fighter jet, like this, is, it's it shouldn't be out there. Yeah, unless I mean, it, it's it, granted. It, unless... it clarified clarified a lot of things about the crash that we didn't know, but um, just definitely not a uh, yeah, just just definitely a, a subpar thing to be yeah. to be putting out there. It brings I thought like. I was going to say it brings up a problem within the UK 35 fleet that we simply don't have enough of them because the one that went down was one of the late, the late, the latest production air versions of the aircraft, which meant it would have had cheaper upgrade costs than the older ones. Yeah, well, so it's good made news. The loss even more. I mean, the the good news is that you know the US is producing them fairly quickly at this point. I think our yearly uh, F35 production numbers. Uh, let me actually check real quick what we are up to. I know most of them are dedicated for the A, but um, we are da, 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 we're now at 156 per year. Um, so Lockheed Martin is um, uh, uh, definitely uh, sort of ramping up that production, which is good. Um, 2020 uh, or 2021, uh, the goal was 133, or the production was 133 to 139. Um, and they're shooting for 156 by next year. Um, so I, I think the UK should see a replacement fairly quickly, or they might, um, uh, due to well, the importance. I was going to say, well, we'll be con the new deliveries of the, aircraft, of the existing orders will be coming, but as for actually replacing that individual one, it's just realistically not going to happen. True. Or, or the US will uh, adequately view the importance of... Um, uh, uh, keeping the UK fleet uh, uh, 
fully equipped and potentially more move them up the line for a replacement V model. Which is is certainly a possibility, though. I I, I assume if that happens, UK Defense Journal will be one of the first to report it. Well, even if it did, it would probably be quite a long time because, I mean, just for example, when Australia lost the um, the A18 at Nellis to a fire, it yes. only took it. The, the, it only took the eventually got around ordering a replacement only a few months ago. So, yeah, granted that is an ungodly low production jet. So, um, there's definitely there there's a bit more involved in that. There are certainly less than 150 being produced per year for the the EA18. Yeah. Um, and and I'm pretty sure that. Whatever happens with the F-35, uh, uh, well, one, the RAF will have to operate without it um, until there there is a replacement. We'll just see how long it takes to get one. Well, it'll probably come within a while, because uh, uh, the initial commitment's 48 aircraft with possibly going 60 to 70-ish. Re- reckon it would probably, if it does, it would probably come within, say, the next batch in a few years with the decide to increase the fleet size. Yeah. Uh, and that, that will certainly, the you know, be something to, to watch for. And, and, you know, we'll, we'll see if it gets replaced. We'll see if it, it gets replaced in the, in the next tranche of deliveries. But, um, at, at this point, the, the fleet air arm is certainly, um, just slightly lower on, on aircraft at this point. Um, Though, though losing one, only one on something like uh, the first CSG-21 deployment, um, they almost made it home without any losses, but almost is, is, is close enough, right? Um, let me just think here. What, what else do we have, like, news-wise this week that I think we missed while absolutely focusing completely and utterly on russia because i i'm I'm legitimately looking back through my twitter feed here and it is it is just russia 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 more russia uh i think that was kind of i think i think it kind of dominated every element of the news yeah um i just it's and and it's sometimes it also super important not to get uh uh tunnel vision on these things oh shoot um something that absolutely i've not been talking about but i've been watching happen have been the um uh uh, nuclear talks between iran and the um and the us the eu um going on right now and are fairly stalling out um uh uh, fairly quickly uh uh, iran wants some promises that i don't think the us is prepared to do yet um which is definitely uh uh, causing the Israelis some pain. Um, we've seen them sort of start to practice uh, uh, for a larger scale strike um, on uh, Iranian nuclear facilities. So we saw, um, I believe, uh, they're planning a large scale uh, simulated strike in the Mediterranean um, starting early next year. Um, so they're going to simulate a strike like that. And I, at this point, I think the the major thing is one: the Iranians are on super high alert. We saw them accidentally. Uh, uh, fire a, uh, I believe it was a, a tour 
um, missile at a, a, a an imagined target just because they're on such a high state of alert by Anatol's uh, nuclear research facility. And the, um, I mean, the Israelis have made it fairly clear if a deal is not, if a if a comprehensive nuclear deal is not reached in via or in um, in Europe between the um, Iranian negotiators and the uh, the EU and the US team. Um, there will be some form of Israeli strike in order to remove the Iranian nuclear capability. Even um, if I was going to say, even if um, even if I think even if I think the nuclear talks get a deal, which I don't think they actually will, but even if they do, I don't think whatever deal that could come up with is not going to match Israel's requirements. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It has to be such a comprehensive deal that either moves back the Iranian nuclear program more than 10 years or completely dismantles the Iranian nuclear program. I, I, I do not view a situation where the, where the Israelis will not um, do some sort of strike into uh, Iranian territory. Think here. Um, so that's, that's, it's, I mean, that's, that's sort of, that that's, that's sort of just an inevitability. That's not even really a question at this point. It's, it's the Iranians lose their yeah. nuclear program in one of two ways, either through uh, some form of uh, uh, diplomacy or the Israelis decide to remove it by force. Um, yeah. There's, there's no and real the in between. Yeah. And the former um, defense minister from, uh, of the net Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu, he's, he even favored a military strike on Iranian positions again, on that case. And it would be, if I personally, I see a military strike coming. I don't see any uh, deal being reaching uh, to, uh, to get that enrichment uh, down of the uranium. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I you just wonder how comprehensive of a military strike are you going to need? Because you're going to need to be sure, be absolutely sure you've completely knocked it out, and then you have got a, a guaranteed counterattack coming. Yeah, well, and and I think the question is the Israelis sort of there is sort of this ingrained element, and I I think we talked about this last time um, we we had an Israeli on the podcast was there there's sort of this ingrained element of um, cultural fear over some sort of nuclear uh, strike on um, on the Israeli uh, Israeli proper. Um, at the, it is this very very massive fear in Israeli culture of something like that, um, and it's sort of been ingrained. So I, I believe that as long as that fear exists, they will not accept Iran having nuclear weapons that could affect them. Um, uh, so it, it's just, it's one of these inevitabilities that's just, it's culturally ingrained at this point. There, there really is no out um, that, that I can see. Okay. Um, so... Yeah, uh, just trying to think here. Is there any other big stuff that I missed? Um, again, still more Russia, Russia, Russia. Today, uh, a chief of defense of Indian uh, Air Force oh. uh, helicopter crash today. Yeah, and and we can he talk about that as well. Yeah, he was sadly killed. Um, at this point, there there is no evidence that it was a shoot down. Um, recording this on. Uh, on uh, Wednesday afternoon U.S. time, so uh, 
there is no evidence that it, it there was foul. Well, not not foul play, but a shoot down. Um, but obviously a, a very um, that's out of question. Yeah, a, a very sad thing and and a very tragic thing to see. And of, of course the uh, the Indians that I've talked to in the since this has happened are are sort of just shocked. Um, this is you know he he was a a very large figure. Um, in the defense community, if not the largest figure in the Indian defense community, um, and and you know losing him was definitely a, a a massive shock to to a lot of Indians, and something that I'm I'm sure. I I I don't know what reforms they would do to sort of to to resolve this. This is just seems like a, a freak incident. To be honest, there's there's not much that can be that can be done to work around stuff like this happening. Um, it, it's, it's one of those things that it, it happens, you know, it happens. Yeah. It's, it, it happens. It's tragic. Everyone mourns, you know, you, you have sort of a defense structure to deal with accidents like that. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's a very tragic event to see. Indeed. And losing an experienced, um, guy, in the military is uh, it's not great for the for in India especially and it's my condolences go out to the people uh, who are close to him but yeah what can we do it's an accident investigation has to be started and and from there we go on yeah and you know things probably you know small changes will be made but but there I I really don't see anything systematic here that could be um that that really resulted in in a, a horrifying accident like this happening. Yeah, sad to see, but you know there 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 are always risks, you know, with 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 anything, and and dealing with it is um. It's is, not just life. It's an it's an inevitability, you know. Things things yeah. happen. <laughs> Shit happens, right? Shit happens. Yeah. Um. I think, uh, actually, you know, let's screw it. Let's just end on Russia things because, of course, I want to do that. Uh, posted is above is a clip of um, the first real images of uh, Ukrainian troops with U.S. supplied um, uh, Javelin missile systems. Um, so, uh, of course, the Javelin system is a new one to see in Ukrainian hands. Um, and uh, it, it's definitely... Um, super interesting to to see them uh utilizing this system which has resulted in uh russians very quickly uh as we talked about on the last podcast episode um up armoring a number of their uh uh armored vehicles in order to try to deal with the threat of uh overhead uh high explosive anti-tank munitions like the uh, javelin and um other sort of anti-tank guided missiles launched from uh, uav platforms like the tb2 um, so definitely something that the Russians have had to react to, uh, whether or not those are effective, that, that still is called into question. Yeah. And, uh, if I'm not wrong, I seen, um, uh, Russian main battle tanks, uh, having like an armor on the turret against, uh, against uh, javelins or any, uh, bombs that get, uh, get dropped on the tanks. If you, did you see that? Yeah, it's, it's the the add-on cage armor that goes on top. It's um, it, it's it's very unique 
well, it, it's not unique. Obviously, we've seen armor like that used before, but it's it, it's primarily been skirted around a tank turret or around the sides of a tank to protect from um, stuff like RPGs or or more flat fired um, anti tank uh, weapons. But with the the advent of top attack munitions, of course, uh, top attack defense is necessary. Um, and Russian tanks are definitely uh, vulnerable on, on the top side to uh, munitions like that. So without added ERA um, systems, uh, basically just Sergei gets out the welder and uh, goes to town. Right. Makes, makes makes a birdcage. <laughs> Absolutely. Make, make a birdcage and hope that, uh, you know, it's a badly fused weapon. Yeah. And on that note, um, thank you everyone for listening to the podcast this week. Um, yeah, thank you. It was great to have you. Uh, we are currently on a weird release schedule just due to everything that's happening. Um, so expect us uh, as we sort of move into the end of this month and into the new year to be back on a more normal uh, uh, Monday release schedule. So we look forward to seeing that happen as well. It's always weird for us to be recording on off days. Um <laughs> And thank you so much. This has been the OSINT Bunker in collaboration with UK Defense Journal. We hope to see you next time. Bye-bye.